Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, David Hook continues our series on Psalms for the Journey. Today, looking at Psalms 132, 133, and 134. And now, here's David. Let's take a moment and just come to the Lord again in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's a blessing to be together. It's a blessing to know that you're with us. It's a privilege to think about that, to recognize it, to speak about it, to sing about it, to share it with others, and to live in this community of uh, your believers and your followers and your people. May we this morning uh, see you in our midst, and may we grow to be more in love with you, more like you, and more dedicated in our following of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our series on the Psalms. Actually, this is the final journey in the Psalms as we come to the end of the section of the book of Psalms labeled the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, I thought this morning we would look at uh, a pilgrim's perspective now, last week, Jim took us on an airplane ride and he uh, he got us to Tel Aviv um, with one engine and sorts of problems. So you have to if you didn't hear that, you can go back and listen to Jim's talk. But this week, I think hiking is more our style this morning. So we're going to uh, put on our hiking boots and go for a hike. Now, it's not going to be that short of a hike, unfortunately. Um, sorry, a bit of warning there. But uh, uh, do pack your bag for an overnight uh, hike, uh, so it's a little bit more vigorous and strenuous than just a you know little walk in the in the in the park. But uh, hiking is something that uh, I have fond memories of. We, as children and a family, we would go on hikes. I remember, Vicky and I did one do, once do an overnight hike, and that was interesting and and fun. And challenging too, and uh, and we continue that in our in our family tradition as we continue to to hike along um, in in various places. Now, when choosing where to hike, I often uh, get attracted to trails that have uh, lookout as part of their name. You know, I want to. I want to check that one out. And usually those are kind of more difficult, too, unfortunately, because you always have to climb to the top of the lookout. But that's uh, sort of what attracts my any, and also any waterfalls along the way. I like But That's just an aside. <laughs> but we're heading for the lookout this morning. Now, I'm sure many of you have gone to Northland Bible Camp and 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 followed the trail to Mount to top of Mount Chester. And uh, and why did you do that? Just because you wanted to go with the company that you were going with? Probably. But but no, you probably wanted to get to the top of Mount Chester so you could take in the view from that top and see the forests and the trees and other lakes and rivers maybe spread out in front of you and just get a panoramic view of wallets around. So today I propose that you, you lace your hiking boots on and uh, and get your backpack and we're going to head out. Uh, to the outlook from the top of Mount Zion. Now, Jim got us to Tel Aviv on the airplane. He dropped us there, and he thought we could maybe go from there to Jerusalem. But I'm going to suggest that we take the bus to Jerusalem just to get there, and then we'll go start our hike, okay? Because it's a little bit too far for us this morning to walk all the way from Tel Aviv to, to Jerusalem. 
So we're going to start out uh, at Jerusalem. And as has been pointed out, um, these psalms or, or poems that we are studying are a group that goes with hiking or taking a pilgrimage. Um, as we reach the conclusion, our goal is in sight and we're, we're going to be reaching the goal of climbing Mount Zion. We can pretend that we're going to celebrate the, maybe the Feast of Booths and we're going to camp out there. So we're bringing our, our, uh, our tabernacle, our tent with us so that we can spend the, spend the night. And so with others who have come along, we will be spending our time uh, there. Uh, just for interest, before we go on, there's a, uh, a little bit of, of geography that you might have been available to you if you were a second temple uh, Israelite. And uh, that's the period of, the, of when this model of Jerusalem uh, is, is supposed to represent, where this is what Jerusalem might have looked like in Jesus' day. And there was a, a road that went from this, this pool of Siloam, which is down to the right there. I'll just see if I can... Highlight that for us somewhere down over here. And and there's this pilgrims road that went up the, the city and into the temple area there. It's a, a road that existed then, but it got lost uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, it was buried in rubble and all sorts of debris and all sorts of things have been built over top of that road. But there is a. Uh, um, A picture, more or less, of what that road might have looked like, as we, as you see it there, and you can see the road extending from the Pool of Siloam up to the top of Mount Zion. Here's a representative of uh, uh, what it might have looked like if if you were a pilgrim that day climbing these stairs. And here's what it looks like today. So they they tunneled underneath the old city. And dug down to the uh, to the actual steps that we're climbing up today, going to up to the top of Mount Zion. It's kind of interesting that, that these these this road has been rediscovered, and and it's just been open to the public about two years ago. So those of us who have been to Israel, unless you've been in the last two years, you weren't able to see this. But uh, now you can go there and, and walk that road again. But you're underground now instead of out in the open air. So the poems we're looking at today in in these last uh, few psalms of ascent are are, uh, pictures of what uh, the the, the poet is trying to say. Uh, Poems use words and uh, use words to to draw pictures for us, to make things uh, stand out. They, they, they use words like colored threads and tapestry to weave in and out the picture of what they want to see. And as such, they are meant to help us see the way the writer sees and feel his mood or her mood and uh, experience the, the life through their eyes. These poems are written to speak to our souls. And they paint a series of pictures. Um, I think in this, these psalms we'll take a picture looking back. We'll take a picture looking ahead to what we anticipate. And we'll take a picture of those looking around us. And, and then we'll take a picture of the journey's end and the journey's completion. All these in, views include the presence of a very a special fellow traveler 
who the writer has carefully painted in, like in some of these paintings, you'll find a little spot where there's, oh, there's something I didn't notice in that painting. There it is. And, and if you look closely, you'll be able to see the, uh, the markings and the, the, uh, the, the pattern of a, of a special traveler that's with us as we take this journey. But it may take some time to, to see that. It may take some meditation, some thought. So we shouldn't rush our time through these poems. And it's well worth going back over them, reading them again and meditating on them and thinking about them and not just, uh, just quickly read through like a flash. So just uh, remember that when you're reading poetry, you often don't see much the first reading. You often see more the second and third and fourth and fifth time. And the more time you think about it and the more time you look at a painting, the more you see of the artist's uh, work. So let's look and see if we can discern this, the presence of this special traveler with us this morning. So on the first picture, we uh, is found in the first half of Psalm 132. And it's a, we've come to a place in our, in our hike where we can turn around and look back and see the road we have taken. It's often valuable to, to look back and see the path that has shaped us. How did we get here? Where did we come from? Now, the past is something we can't change, but we can definitely learn from it. We may perceive the presence of someone directing or guiding our steps. We can see the results of good choices, and we can see the times when we've gone wrong and we've gone off the path um, and the problems we've had from that. And we can learn our lessons from the past. So in Psalm 132, the poet, poet is looking back at how the Lord's dwelling place came to be on Mount Zion. How did this particular mountain become our destination for our pilgrimage? As we look back, we see that David had an intense desire to find a dwelling place for the Lord. We'll read the first half of Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathra. We came upon it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. We'll pause there as we read the psalm. But in ancient times of worship, uh, deities, the worship of deities was centered at a location of that deity's dwelling place. This was usually a temple. It gave a focal point for worship. The Lord had instructed Moses on the construction of a tabernacle or a tent for the Lord's presence. And that was a, a movable dwelling place for the Lord. As they journeyed to the promised land, they picked up the tabernacle and moved it with them. But David was trying to uh, find a permanent place. Uh, for the Lord's dwelling. It was his intense desire to, to bring that Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And David was willing to sacrifice his, sacrifice his comfort and sleep and uh, 
his other needs in order to bring God's presence to Jerusalem. You can read about his completion of the plan in the book of First Chronicles, chapters 13, 15, and 16. And we don't have time to read it all, but moving the ark was a big deal for David and the nation. We'll just take a moment to read a few verses out of First Chronicles 16. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of units of a thousand went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the Ark, and as were the musicians and Kenaniah who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. David also wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouts, with the sounding of ram's horns, and trumpets, and of cymbals, and playing of the lyres and the harps. So David brought the ark to Jerusalem. It was an intense event. The whole nation got involved in that, uh, that time of transfer. So in this ark, we find a, a picture of our, our special traveler. The ark was the place of the mercy seat, the, this place where God's presence was uh, focused, the place where heaven met earth. And in our looking back, we can see that Jesus is referred to as that place of God's presence, that mercy seat. And even in one uh, translation, Romans 3.25 says, God publicly publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. So, bringing the ark to Jerusalem, David was, was bringing the symbol of God's redemption. He was bringing Jesus to stay with him. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the ark and the temple and all the, the uh, things that were in the temple were really shadows of the reality of what's in heaven. The people of that time, they represented the presence of God and their means of accessing that presence. But we see them now as the shadows of the reality that was foreseen at that time, but has become real for us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking back at our lives, are there times when we have made the effort to make Jesus part of our journey? Have we invited him to be our fellow traveler Maybe you can point to a day or a, a specific time when you ask Jesus to start that journey with you. Or, or maybe you can't see the exact location, but you know that you have him with you as you, if you travel life's road. You have come to see him as God with us. And that was his name foretold, Emmanuel, God with us. If you don't think you have made that choice or you don't understand a bit of anything of what I'm saying, there's no better time to start this journey with Jesus than right now. And if you need some more help in understanding what that means, please take time to, to speak to one of us afterwards and we can help you understand a little bit more what, we, what we're talking about. Looking back and, and up to the present, have we experienced his presence? Do we feel his presence? Are we walking with him? Are we journeying with him? Do we converse with him? These things don't happen without an intense desire such as David had. 
Are we willing to give up our life of ease in order to experience his presence with us? David was willing to go without sleep and without uh, rest, and he made that commitment to, to bring God's presence into his city. The times that I've been most aware of Jesus' presence have come when preparing talks to speak to you folks. You know, that's when I'm really spending more time. And sometimes think, what a shame I don't do this more often because I've experienced the closeness of God. And yet these other activities, our leisure time or other uh, other things, take us away and drag us away from that. And we often not just drag us away, we often run after them because we kind of like those things too. But we're missing out if we don't have that uh, time with Jesus. And so there are things that we need to consider in order to experience Jesus' closeness and his presence with us. As, was, as David was willing to go for, forego his sleep, am I willing to give up some of my leisurely activities in order to meet with him? Just a question for us all. Well, we've arrived at our lookout. All the hiking and climbing has been worthwhile. We can now see into the far distance other hills, valleys, lakes and rivers, cities and towns, the open sky. The view is spectacular. We can see the future, the places we have yet to visit and have yet to reach. The possibilities are staggering. There's so much to see and take in. Did anyone bring a camera? <laughs> of course, we all have our phones now. So, But let's take a look at the poet's picture of the panorama and of the future's potential. The second part of Psalm 132. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David, and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. The poet recalls just that just as David had made a promise to find a resting place for the Lord, the Lord has made a promise to David. You can see this sort of the parallels in this, excuse me, the two halves of the, of the poem. And Hebrews love to make parallels in their poems. And so you can see it verse by verse, but you can also see it in section to section sometimes. So. The Lord promised that, to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. He also promised that the city would be a satisfied city, no hunger or want, and that it would be a place of joy. Not only that, but that David's anointed one, the Messiah, which is what Messiah means, would be a source of light and honor for the people. Well, this may have all looked possible to the people of Solomon's day when they were pilgrims going up to the to the top of 
Mount Zion. But what about after the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple and executed the king, David's uh, heir? And with, with farther vision, the people of the second temple area could sing this poem again when they went up and climbed to the top of Mount Zion. They could look out and see the possibility of a Messiah coming who would restore the kingdom now that again they had a magnificent temple. But all that came crashing down when the Romans destroyed the whole city. Um, hunger, death, and mourning were all that they had to replace the plentiful and joyful life that they expected. So that all looks pretty bleak. So what, what is this picture showing us about the future? But, but ah, there's more to the picture if we keep looking at it and we, we can read some of what is reflected by maybe Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist at the occasion of John's birth, when he he looked at this picture and, and saw what was what was happening. Let's just look at um, Luke's um, account of what that of what Zechariah said. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Doesn't that reflect the, the sound of Psalm 132, that the God has prepared a horn for, his, for David? As he said through his holy prophets long ago, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So is that still visible from the lookout, even though there we've seen this sort of rubble and destruction of, of Mount Zion and all it's, that it promised? Is the poet's vision uh, distant indeed? Could they foresee beyond that the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, the Anointed One? Yes, I think that the poet in Psalm 132 sees far beyond the timing of events that have happened. He sees into the distant future and sees this Messiah coming. A horn or a strength for David. Yes, even Jesus' potential seemed to be snuffed out before the blessings promised could be seen. And his followers were perplexed and dismayed. But Jesus' death was in fact the promise of victory over the true enemy. And his resurrection proved him to be worthy, a worthy recipient of that radiant crown. A city filled with joy, abundance and light is the scene again as John stands looking out over the view in his vision. And we, we find that in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. But here's some verses. Here's a vision of Jerusalem filled with joy and light. And plenty, and again, uh, restored into that. And this is what even Psalm 132, way back then, foresees as coming in the future. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place, same words that we, we find in Psalm 32, is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. 
for the older, old order of things has passed away. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp, Lamb is its lamp. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So from our lookout, we are now able to see farther than the pilgrims of old. We can see to the farthest horizon, and the view is spectacular. The city laid out before us through John's vision. We can even see what was meant by the priest being clothed in salvation. That Hebrew word for salvation is Yesa, the root word for Yeshua, which is Hebrew Joshua, and Greek becomes Jesus, the Lord saves. So the people will be clothed in Jesus. There we find our, our traveler again, our, our traveler who's with us. We will be clothed by Jesus. They will be clothed in his salvation. Paul tells us this of this salvation apparel in the letter to Colossians, if we just want to take a few minutes to deviate from our, our view and see what, what does this royal apparel look like. Paul writes to the Colossian church, You have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in, knowledge in the image of its creator. Therefore, as God's chosen people, Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. As people of Jesus' kingdom, we are his priests and his servants, and we will be clothed in his royal attire. Well, we spent a lot of time looking at the view, but we need to, to make camp. Uh, for the evening, the next poem weaves the pictures together. The people clothed in salvation are now to, to dwell together. Psalm 133 says, Look how good and how pleasant it is when brothers live together. It is like fine oil poured on the head which flows down the beard, Aaron's beard, and then flows down on his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon which flows down upon the hills of Zion. Indeed, that is where the Lord has decreed a blessing will be available, eternal life. Togetherness. Some translations say unity, others say harmony, but the word could just just stand as together. How blessed it is when brothers dwell together. The other word that could come to to be used in there is community. People clothed in love, living together in community. The poet uses some very vivid metaphors for the description of this togetherness in Christ. It's compared to the anointing oil used to set apart the high priest. It spreads and flows. It's fragrant. It fills the whole body. It begins at the top, but it spreads to all the members. Everyone in the community has a common scent, that fragrance of life. It also shares a common source of dew or water. 
that life-giving water or mist again starts at the top as Hermon, Mount Hermon is the highest peak in Israel at the northern part of the country. And as the mists and dew spread down from that mountain, they water the rest of the land. And it flows out to all the community gathered at Zion. The idea of flowing down like anointing oil and mist brings to mind images of the Spirit infusing life into the community. The result is a fruitful community where spiritual fruit is evident. And we've talked about our clothing, but the fruit that that, uh, we experience is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. This describes a group of people camped out together for life. They are not just individuals, but they're interacting with each other. They're a community where thoughts and ideas are discussed. Not just individuals living out their existence, but sharing and supporting each other. There will remain differences in views and ideas. It's not uniformity, but there will be unity and harmony. There will be the mutually supported growth of the whole. This community will be as, uh, will be out as the members of the kingdom of Jesus. It is his blood that flowed down from Zion that brings the possibility of such a kingdom. There is a, a Hebrew word that describes this type of community. The word uh, shalom, uh, that's the Hebrew word for peace, harmony, wholeness. It's God's purpose for his kingdom to bring shalom to the world, the coming of his kingdom. So that's life in the New Jerusalem, but we experience that now in our community of believers. Or that should be our, our goal and our drive to have that type of togetherness. Jerusalem, the city of Salem, or Shalom, is the city of peace and life eternal. There's one more scene in our series of poems, and that is the the completion of the journey. It's the uh, picture of the day ending, I think. The scene is the temple at night. So we've, we've reached the peak, we've set up our camps, and now we're heading into the evening. Does all activity cease when night comes? No, the Lord is still present and active during the night. Here's what the psalmist wrote in, uh, in the second shortest psalm, I believe, in the book of Psalms. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord, Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is maker of heaven and earth. Historical records indicate that at the time of the second temple, Herod's temple, there were over 200 priests and Levites that remained on duty during the night. Their role was to serve during the night and to continue to offer praise to God. I'm not sure what all they else they did, but they were sort of there to keep the night lights burning and the significance that God was still present with them during the night. To me, this is a powerful reminder that the Lord does not slumber or sleep. And the psalmist in Psalm 121 of this series already spoken on stated that then, that the Lord doesn't slumber or sleep, but he stays 
there and present for us. For some, nighttime is a time of trouble and fear. But the Lord still watches over his people even during those difficult times. The Lord promises to be with his people. Jesus says to his disciples, and I am with you always, even though they were facing turbulent times, he was going to be with them until the end. Matthew's gospel reports that at the very close of his gospel. But night can also be a time of meditation and reflection, a time of seeing new aspects of the Lord's presence, of seeing that which can be hidden by the bright light of day and the busyness of the day, some things that we might not notice, we can start to notice at nighttime. I was recently reading a, a novel, and one of the characters in the novel was asked which time of day they preferred, the twilight time, which time, the twilight in the dawn or the twilight in the evening? And the character responded that they liked the evening twilight because at the end of the evening twilight, things became visible. The, the night's guy opened up and you could see things that you couldn't see in the in the light of day. And so it's just a little bit. We often think that the, the dawn is what we like to see. But to just think about it, that the that the night is also a time where we can start to see things that we might not normally be able to see. We were we were just camping out the last week. We were traveling and had a few nights in a park uh, where there was a sort of no extraneous light. You know, it was very dark. And the stars just sort of pop out at you. You almost feel like you could reach out and grab them. They were they just so bright and intense and close. And we we spent quite a bit of time trying to identify some of the constellations and even see the most distant light you can see without an aided eye. And that's the galaxy of Andromeda. But all of these things that are there that you could not see, even if there's a little bit of light sneaking in, you you lose quite a bit of that. And during the day, obviously, the stars are not seen because of the brightness around us. So they are fascinating. And there's, there's the nighttime can be a time to learn more about the one who made the heavens and the earth. For the stars declare the glory of God and, and his firmament declares his wonder. But the night is also the ending of one day, but the anticipation of the beginning of a new one. And we anticipate a new day and a fresh start as we come to the night and as we look forward to the next day. So his blessings do flow down from Zion, the place where heaven and earth met on a cross erected there 2,000 years ago. On the darkness, out of the darkness of that day flowed a bright hope for the future as we journey together with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the uh, pictures that we've seen of you this morning and pictures of our life and our, our past and our present and our future and the hope that we have in you. We just ask that you would help us to make the effort to, um, to spend time with you, to converse with you, to seek you with our hearts as David did, that we might seek to have you journey with us in our lives. May you uh, bring us together as a group of, of uh, believers in community, supportive and loving, sharing and in harmony and unity uh, as we just open our lives to one another. And pray that, that 
that uh, shalom might spread, might spread to our greater community, might spread to our country and indeed the world. And especially if we were thinking of Egypt and some of the other countries where that peace is so much needed. So, Father, help us this morning as we journey and as we walk with you to keep our, our eyes focused on you and to see you, your presence with us daytime or nighttime or wherever we are. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.